Well, turning your Bible or scrolling your Bible app, if you would, to the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah chapter 3. Slow and steady wins the race. We are now over the halfway mark in this incredibly short book. Lord willing, we will get through it this summer. Today we look at Jonah chapter 3. If you would, please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word. And follow along silently as I read aloud the entirety of Jonah chapter 3. It's just 10 verses. We'll pick it up in verse 1. This is what the Word of God says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn away from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The title of the sermon is Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day. That's because as we begin to read Jonah 3 in the words of Ned Ryerson, it sure as heck fire sounds a heck lot lot like Jonah 1. In fact, the parallels that you can draw between the two chapters are kind of stunning. Let me see if I can point them out to you. You can flip back and forth if you want, or you can just listen as I read them. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, in Jonah 3, verse 1, God's word comes to Jonah. In the second verse of both chapters, God commissions Jonah. In Jonah 1, 3 and Jonah 3, 3, Jonah responds to God. In Jonah 1, he goes to Tarshish. In Jonah 3, he goes to Nineveh. In Jonah 1 and Jonah 3, verse 4... Jonah receives a warning by way of the storm, or Jonah gives a warning by way of his preaching. But there's warning in the fourth verse of both chapters. In Jonah 1.5 and Jonah 3.5, the pagans respond. In Jonah 1.6 and Jonah 3.6, the pagan leader responds. The captain of the ship in Jonah 1, the king of Nineveh in Jonah 3. In Jonah 1.7 and, and Jonah 3.7, the pagans' response is ultimately better than Jonah's. And so we'll see this parallel, the way that the Lord in his kindness has constructed the book of Jonah. The parallels between chapters 1 and 3 are stunning. This is like scene 2. It seems like we're reliving that first chapter all over again, just at the way it's constructed. But as you look, it has a very different outcome. And Lord willing, in the coming weeks, we'll see a similar parallel between the way the Lord is pleased to show grace to Jonah in chapter 2 and how he shows grace to Jonah in chapter 4. Today our text is the entirety of Jonah 3, so let's Walk through it together and see what the Lord has for us. Jonah 3 verse 1 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. We can get right to our first point right away. You need to know that our God delights in giving second chances. 
He delights in giving second chances, especially to those who are his, to the, to, to, to the redeemed, to those who love him. God would have been perfectly justified in never using Jonah again as a prophet, right? Like, could you have blamed him if he was just like, yeah, that didn't go well, so I'm going to find someone else with whom it will go well. I'm not gonna, I mean, we, he was told to go to Nineveh, and he went to Tarshish. I'm not going to take my chance with this guy. We're going to get somebody else for the job, someone else who's going to do what I say. He would have been perfectly justified. It made a lot of sense. Jonah's high-handed rebellion, his disobedience, could have easily ruled him out as a vessel to be used by the Lord. But that's not the case. God commissions him again. Aren't you glad that our God delights in giving these second chances? You can think back on your life, but if you're anything like me, honestly, you can think back on your week. And be very glad that there's an opportunity to have a second chance to do something better than you did recently. I'm guessing there's at least one thing you did or didn't do, said or didn't say, maybe even prayed or didn't pray recently that you're unbelievably grateful to God. You'll have an opportunity to redo or improve upon in some way, Lord willing. It's not uncommon for God to give second chances to those who are his. We won't turn there today, but in John chapter 13, we read about Jesus wanting to wash the disciples' feet. Right? And he wants to do this. And uh, there's, you have the Apostle Peter. Right, Who gets more second chances than the Apostle Peter? There are numerous times when it would have been just so sad if Peter's story ended in the midst of his folly. And here in John 13, Jesus endeavors to wash the disciples' feet. It's an act of love. It's an act of kindness, of servant leadership. He wants to explain to the disciples that they are to love one another, to serve one another. A servant is not greater than his master. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the things that Jesus is saying in John 13. But before that, Jesus is getting ready. He ties a towel around his waist. He gets a basin, and it says, when Peter, when he came to Peter. So he had washed the disciples' feet, washed the disciples' feet. We don't know how many, but he gets to Peter and Peter goes, ha oh, ha, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus is like, well, I have to, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no share with me. And then he's like, well, not my feet, but my hands and my head. And it's like, like ditch to ditch to ditch. You will never wash my feet. Well, if I don't wash your feet, you're not one of mine. Well, then wash my whole body. And Jesus is like, or just the feet really would be awesome. If we could just stick with my plan, that would be like so great. We're constantly seeing that. It's a second chance for Peter. Jesus explains to his disciples that he would be arrested and killed. When they come to arrest him, who intervenes? Well, it's none other than Peter. He takes out a sword, slices off one of the soldier's ears. Earlier that night, Jesus told Peter he would deny that he even knew him. Peter told Jesus that he was wrong. Not me. Then, of course, not only does he deny Jesus, but he denies him three times. God delights in giving second chances to those whom he loves. I think he does it because he loves us. But I actually think that's secondary secondary to the fact that God really unashamedly and unapologetically loves himself and loves to bring glory to himself. He loves to glorify himself, working through the most unlikely people like Peter, like Jonah, like this Peter, like you. He receives greater glory than if he chose to work through someone who seemed to be more fit to the task. Uh, Keep your place in Jonah 3, but turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First uh, Corinthians chapter 1. Paul realizes this. First Corinthians chapter 1, take a look at verse 25. And Paul says this, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, 
And the weakness of God is stronger than men. I mean, right there, it's just like, what? Wait, wait, what? God has no foolishness. He has no weakness. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He, has no, he doesn't have these things. But to put it in words that we could, even if God had foolishness, it would be wiser than the wisdom of all mankind. Even if God had weakness, it is stronger than the strength of all of mankind. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. He's, he's basically saying, like, look around. Look around. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. So that as somebody's doing the things of the, the work of the Lord, the things of God, we wouldn't look at them and be like, yeah, I mean, that's Tom. I mean, that's, duh, of course he would do. He kind of had it coming. I mean, yeah, that's Jenny. I mean, look at Jenny. I mean, she's, she's of noble birth. She comes from a long line of people who just serve the Lord. With, no, that's not how God rolls. God takes people who you would never imagine being used by him to do great things for his glory. It's always been the way he works. It's how he's working in the book of Jonah. Because even after Jonah messed it up big time, he's recommissioning him. Now, God gave Jonah a second chance because he loved Jonah and had compassion on him, surely. But look at the second chance he received as we go back to the book of Jonah in Jonah chapter 3. It's not just a second chance because he didn't die in the storm. It's not just a second chance because he didn't die in the belly of a fish. Or that he didn't die from being vomited onto the beach. It was a second chance so he could still be used by God to accomplish his mission. Still be used by God. And so what about you? Let's just pause for a minute. Consider that last second chance God gave you, whatever it looked like in whatever form it came in. Why do you think he did it? I, I don't know the answer to that, but I think it's important to acknowledge God's grace at work in our lives and realize the second chance we're given isn't just because. Uh, there's an opportunity there for us to acknowledge God's grace. There's an opportunity there to consider how we might Glorify God with our lives, with this extension of our lives, or this further, this, this additional opportunity that we have to serve Him, where we might obey Him, where, how we might serve Him and redeem the time we have in our life for His glory. And so Jonah's granted that in Jonah chapter 3. I'll pick it up in verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh, uh, an exceedingly great city, literally in the Hebrew, a great city to God. That's what it said. This, this city, for some reason, is great and important to God that it be reached. Three days' journey in breath. That's the time it would be required to traverse the entire city. Three days. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. Literally in the Hebrew, on the first day of his walk in the city, he proclaimed, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, he probably said more than that. Right? Everyone assumes he said more than that because just that statement alone wouldn't have brought about the response that happened from the people. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. People are like, I need God. Like nobody, he, is he telling people to turn to God? Is he like, it would have sparked questions. Who are you? Why are you here? Why do you look like death? Because he probably looked, I read earlier in my studies of a person who in the late 1800s, he was a whaler and apparently he was swallowed by 
a giant sperm whale. And he didn't spend a long time in there, but long enough that the time that he spent in the gut or whatever of its giant sperm whale being over 100 degrees, his skin was permanently bleached. And so he survived. He didn't look like he survived. Like he, he, he looked like he had been in the belly of a giant whale. And so chances are, as Jonah is walking through Nineveh, he, people are like, what do you mean? Why are you looking? What happened to you, man? Like, did he have an encounter with God? Did he have an encounter with death? Uh, see all of the above? Did something happen? He, he's getting the attention of people. He's talking to people. Surely it wasn't that he just walked in and said, <clears throat> yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Thank you. And he just walked away. That's not what happens. Surely there was more that he said that we don't know about here. So it's not too much to go out on a limb to say he told them about God. He told them that they had sinned. He told them that he needed to repent. They told him that in 40 days he's giving them this opportunity because he's giving them a timeline to say the city's going to be overthrown if you don't repent in this period of time. If there was no hope for them, why would he give a time period? So he surely said more than that. Verse 5 says this, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And so before we looked at God giving second chances to people who love him, right? Peter, Jonah, believers like you and me. But here we see God giving second chances to those that are lost. And God does that. Again, God doesn't have to do that. He would have been perfectly right in judging the Ninevites for their idolatry and high-handed sins against God and people. In fact, he would have been glorified either way, right? God receives a lot of glory if he just wipes out evil from his presence. It's like, wow, God wins all the time. But God gives second chances to those that are his, and he gives second chances to those that are not his. Those who don't love him don't follow him. Why? Because God is a perfectly righteous judge. He will render to each one according to his deeds, and he won't shy away from it. He won't wrestle with it. He won't feel bad about it. He doesn't sleep. But if he did, he wouldn't lose sleep over it. But he doesn't feel good about it either. In, a book, in the book of Ezekiel chapter 18, it's not in your outline, but Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, he says this. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live? A few verses later, he says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. That's an important glimpse into the heart of God, right? Knowing that he takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Will he destroy the wicked? Yes. Will he apologize for it? No. Does he feel bad about it? No. It's the right thing. It's the righteous judge doing the right thing. It's justice. Perfect justice. But what brings God joy? uh, What brings joy? I mean, he's an emotional God, right? We're created in his image. He... He, he takes pleasure in certain things. He doesn't take pleasure in other things. What brings him joy is not when somebody gets what they deserve. That's almost boring, right? Yeah, that just kind of adds up. It cancels out on both sides. We solve for X. That's just, it's just logical. It just makes sense. What brings God joy is when somebody changes, when someone who would receive judgment receives mercy, when someone who hated God loves God, when someone who didn't believe in God now, now embraces God, when someone who hated the fact that people would preach about God now has a love for God and shares God with other people. And so God gives second chances to those that are not his. Why? Because he really enjoys it. Loves it. Loves seeing people come to him. 
He doesn't cry about people getting what they deserve. That's justice. But man, you want to see God be, be delighted? Have pleasure? Something God, you know, I don't know if he probably doesn't have elbows, but he's like, watch this. Watch this. This guy. Watch this. This woman. Watch this. God takes great pleasure in that. Jonah 3.5 says, The people of Nineveh believed God, called for a fast, and put on sackcloth. Verse 6 says, The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. We talk a lot about transformational living in the Christian life, particularly in biblical counseling. We'll talk about putting off our old ways, being renewed in the spirit of our mind, putting on the new ways of Christ, Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24. What a picture of that, right? Because here the here the, the king hears the, the message that Jonah preaches. He what? He puts off his robe. Right? Well, first he gets up. He puts off his robe. He puts on sackcloth. And he sits in a new place. A place of repentance. A place of mourning. A place of he sits in ashes. He's a new person, maybe perhaps. He's a new perspective. He then issues a proclamation, verse 7, published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast... Herd nor flock taste anything. This guy's so much got the, Jonah got his attention so much, he declares a fast for the animals. Animals too. Whoa, okay, whoa. Let them not feed or drink water, verse 8, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violences in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So he's got, Jonah got his attention. The message got the king's attention, right? Let's do this. Why? Who knows? Maybe it will get his attention. Clearly we have judgment coming to us. Maybe the Lord will relent. Maybe if we stop, maybe if we change our ways, maybe perhaps the judgment that's coming, like what have we got to lose? We're all going to die? So who knows? Let's try and, and change our ways. Maybe the Lord would relent from the judgment that's coming to us. And so he does, verse 10. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And here ends Jonah chapter 3. Did the Ninevites become believers? Like in Jonah chapter 1, if you remember, we looked at the, the sailors who were on the ship. Right? The sailors who are on the ship, all of a sudden they're, you know, we have Jonah sleeping in the bottom of the ship, and then there's the sailors, and the sailors cry, they cast lots, they realize it's Jonah. Like, what are we supposed to do? Jonah's like, well, throw me in. They're like, okay, next option. They try to row back to land. They don't get back to land. They're about to throw Jonah into the water. They cry out to God, Lord, please don't hold this man's blood on us. We're we're not doing this to kill him. We're not... We're doing this because we really believe that you caused the lot to land on Jonah and that you are telling us what to do through him and throwing him in the water. This goes against everything we'd want to do. Please don't, please don't hold his life. Don't hold us responsible for his life. Throw him in the water. The sea seizes. What does it say? It says that he, that they went, they made vows. They made sacrifices to the Lord. They had a change of heart. They, be, they were believers. I don't think that's the case with the Ninevites in Jonah chapter 3. If you look at 
Uh, Verse 8, when the king says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence in his hands, the Hebrew term employed there is one of change, but it's a course change, not necessarily a course correction. Let me see if I can explain that. In other words, when we say repent as believers, we're implying that we're turning from our sinful ways of thinking and doing and to a righteous, more God-honoring way of thinking and doing. There's an implication that the former actions were inferior to the latter. That language isn't used here. And so, unlike the sailors in Jonah 1, who cried out to God himself, asked him to not charge them with Jonah's life, we're told they feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord. They made vows. They believed. They loved the Lord. The Ninevites changed what they were doing to hopefully not be judged by God. And in his kindness and his mercy, God relented from the judgment he was going to carry out upon the city for the time being. But I don't think the Ninevites now love the Lord as a result of what they did. I think they stopped doing the evil so that they wouldn't be condemned. But there's nothing in the text to show us that they now had a love for God. In fact, not to get ahead of ourselves, but just a few generations later, God wipes out Nineveh, which you could read about in an even shorter book called Nahum. But back to Jonah 3, this provides a good segue for us to switch gears a bit. Because I'm glad God provides second chances, right? But point number two is this. Don't believe that God always gives second chances. God always gives a second chance. Uh, false. The categorically untrue. If you read through Jonah and think the moral of the story, the thing we can take away from this is that God always gives second chances, you'd be woefully mistaken. There's no principle here that God always responds this way to people who rebel against his will. Not at all. There's precedent that he does this, but there's plenty of precedent that he does the opposite. Jonah is by no means a typical believer, living a typical life, right? Who among us isn't swallowed by a beast, am I right? Uh, No. He's not a typical, like, this is just your run-of-the-mill guy. Loves the Lord, struggles. His situation isn't typical. Not all parts of Jonah's life serves serves as an example for us. Jonah got a recommissioning, but that doesn't mean that God won't disbar us from his service if we miss the boat the first time around, no pun intended. God gives second chances. But you know what? He also doesn't give second chances. It's in your outline in the book of Numbers. Uh, The Hebrews had been freed from Egypt, walked through the Red Sea on dry land, watched the Red Sea be enclosed upon their enemies. And the Hebrews were like so happy about that, except they missed the food from Egypt. Oh man, the food was so much better. It was so much better when we were slaves because the food was better, said they. Where are we going to get meat? We want meat. And God's like, you want meat? I'll give you meat. I'll give you, I I, I can give you meat. I can do this. You want meat? I'll give you meat. And so he gives them Meat. Uh, Numbers 11, verses 33 and following says this. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague because they had a craving. While the meat was yet between, like before they could even floss, man. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, God struck them with a great plague. Why? Because they were thankless, idolatrous people. Zero second chance. 
You say, well, that's Old Testament God. And I know God doesn't change, but I feel like God's been in a better mood ever since Jesus came. Well, in Acts chapter 5, <laughs> you might remember our series in the book of Acts, two people named Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of land. Nothing wrong with that. They make a profit. There's nothing wrong with that. They keep a little for themselves. I would even say there's nothing wrong with that. But then they present what they present, the sum of money to the apostles, as if this was all they made. Lying about the fact that they kept some for themselves. And they lay this at the feet of the apostles. And they're like, yeah, this is what we, this is what we got. And Peter says this in Acts 5, verse 4. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And then young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. No, no second chance. It's not like Ananias said, yeah, this is what we made. And they looked back at him and they're like, bro. And he's like, you're right, I'm sorry. We really, there's no second chance. There was a brief conversation and instant death. But it doesn't end there, right? Because Sapphira comes in and doesn't know what just happened to her husband because they've so swiftly carried him out and started burying him already. They don't waste no time. And she comes in and they're like, hey, did you sell the land for so much? And she's like, yeah, for so much. And she says, she says the same thing. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. That's how she found out her husband was dead, by the way. Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door. My husband's been buried? She dies. They come in there. They carry her out. And they're they're busy day. They carry her out. They bury her. No second chance. We thank God that he gives second chances. Don't be so foolish to think that God always gives second chances. There are several problems with what I've dubbed second chance theology. Uh, Second chance theology, thinking that there are a number of chances the Lord gives us to get it right. Whether it's like a cat that has nine lives or that God, there's like a a certain number that he has that he's going to give us, and then all of a sudden when we hit that number, we run out. Or There's just a number of problems with second chance theology. Maybe some people get a lot of second chances, others not so much. And we're all living life hoping the Lord will dole out a second chance. The first problem that I see is that it implies an overwhelming amount of pressure to not mess up. Overwhelming amount of pressure to not mess up. It's up to me to finally get it right. I better try my best. I hope it's good enough. Because if this is, am I in the second chance? Did I miss the, this is the first chance? Do I have one? I don't know what's coming. I don't know. An overwhelming amount of pressure to make sure that we get it right. Because if we don't, we might be sunk. Second chance theology offers no peace or assurance because it's still up to you to not mess this up again. This could be all there is. Which is fine. Just don't mess it up. I think second chance theology falls, for, falls short because in reality, we all know we need more than two chances. Like, I'm glad I get more than one chance, but I'm kind of nervous I only have two, just to be honest. Second chance theology assumes there's a limit that is up to me not to hit or I'm sunk. I like baseball. I hope I don't strike out, but at the same time, I really wish I knew what the count was. Where are we at? 
Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon based on Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. The title of the sermon was not Groundhog Day. The title of the sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He preached an entire sermon, not passionately, we're told, just basically read an entire sermon based on Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, which says, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. And Jonathan Edwards was not concerned that people realize that God gives a ton of second chances, but that people realize that they are but a breath away from eternity in hell, that they, either because of their death or the Lord's return, should not presume upon tomorrow, because tomorrow is promised to no one. I'm going to read to you a portion of that sermon. It's a great sermon. I'm going to read to you just a portion of it. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to, to bear to have you in his sight. You are... 10,000 more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night. That you are allowed to wake again in this world after you close your eyes to sleep. And there is, there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. God gives second chances. For sure. But not always. If you sit under the sound of my voice today living a life you not me, that you know needs to change. And you plan to change, just not today. If you sit here under the preaching of the Word of God on a Sunday, comfortable in the fact that only you know what you really do, or only you know where you really go, or only you know the two lives you're living, if you sit here under the preaching of the Word of God having legitimately fooled everyone, literally everyone. Not a soul knows what you know about you, and we're all buying it, hook, line, and sinker. You are living a dangerous life, a dangerous life, my friend. You are presuming upon God giving you another 
chance. You are assuming the breath you have in your lungs today will be in your lungs tomorrow or later today or in an hour. You are assuming the functioning brain you enjoy right now and that you are blessed with will be the same in an hour and you are forgetting the word of God in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 35 where God says, vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Paul in Galatians 6 verses 7 and following says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God gives second chances for sure. I want to boldly proclaim that. And I want to boldly proclaim that also God stops giving second chances for sure. And the fact that you have one today is a gloriously blessed thing that you'd be wise to take full advantage of instead of presuming its presence will remain for another week or another day or another hour. That's why... When we read in the Bible, we say that today is the day of salvation. You'd be like, today? I don't know. Today, today is the day of salvation? It's August. I don't know. August 1st is the day of salvation. Every year is the day of salvation? No, today is the day of salvation because you're alive. Today is the day of salvation because you have breath, because you have a beating heart, because you, you didn't, as Jonathan Edwards said, you didn't die and go to hell last night. You woke up on earth. Today is the day of salvation because it's not too late for you. It's not too late for you. You can still hear this, this message. You can still interact with the word of God. Your life hasn't ended. Your story is not over. Today is the day of salvation because tomorrow is promised to no one. And you know what offer you have for you today? Something so much better than a second chance. So much better than a second chance in, in one area of your life that's out of line or a second shot in an area of your life where you're consistently missing the mark and you can try again. God offers you change that's better than what the Ninevites did. God offers change that doesn't just delay his wrath for a moment or for a period of time. God offers you something better than an itty-bitty area to change so you become a nicer person or a moral citizen or a, a do-gooder for the rest of your life. God offers you eternity. It's not a second chance, it's a second life. A second life. That's why Christ said to Nicodemus what he said in John chapter 3. Turn to John chapter 3. We're not talking about improving an area of our life just because. We're not talking about a second chance so that we can not just do the bad thing we did before and we can kind of make it up. We're not talking about a second chance. We're talking about a second life. John 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, secretly, so nobody would know. Said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one tries again, is that what it says? I say no louder. Is that what it says? No. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one takes another shot at life. Is that what it says? No. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, not a second chance, a second life, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? 
Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Super awkward question. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, so everyone's born of water, of the flesh, but unless you're born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. See, he's talking about new life, and Nicodemus asked that awkward question, like, what am I supposed to enter my mother's womb a second time? He's like, no, no, I'm not talking about being reborn again of the water. I'm talking about a new birth, a new life. A second life where you'd be born of the Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes, verse 8. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Skip down to verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. This is something Nicodemus as a rabbi would have been very familiar with. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's not a second chance. It's a second life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, verse 19. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is the judgment that people live every day of their life thinking that they can change their life in the future. Not cognizant of the fact that their life is short and that Jesus is coming. And thinking like, yeah, I know this area of my life needs to improve, but I'll have another day. I know that I need to come to faith in Christ, and, and it's been bugging me, and the gospel gnaws at me. But just not now. I've got to stay. I'm, I'll do it later. I'll do it when I settle down. I'll do it when I'm older. I'll do it when I'm closer to death. I'll do it when I retire. I'll do it when I'm done with this. Whatever it is. That is what, this is the judgment. The light is coming to the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Love the darkness rather than the light. I'll continue sleeping with my boyfriend because I'm going to marry him one day. I'll continue stealing from my employer because I realize that it really doesn't make a big deal according to the bottom line. I'll continue this lie because it's just a small lie and it's a lie I've been telling for so long and it just feels right. I've actually forget it's a lie. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. It's safer in the darkness. But the Bible says everything's better in the light. But whoever does what is true and comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We're not talking just about a little bit of a second chance. We're talking about an opportunity for a second life. Born again. That's what that means. You say, oh my gosh, the way I'm, wait, does that mean I, my slate gets wiped clean and now it's up to me to maintain this perfect perfection in front of God? I have a perfect record in front of God, but I need to maintain it? No, Philippians 2, verse 12, it's in your outline. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You say, there it is, I've got to work it out myself. No, read on. For it is who? It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's like, I'm on it. I'll give you strength. I'll give you grace. I'll give you mercy. Uh, you won't be sinless, that's only me, but I can help you sin less. 
You can walk in the light as he is in the light. We don't have to walk in the darkness. I'm going to help you to do my goodwill. You can't be as perfect as me, but I want to help you. I, want to, I love you. I love to help my people. I love to strengthen them. I love to wow the world when people say, how does Tom do it? How did Susie do that? That's crazy. How is God using Jim for this? We all know Jim, that guy, am I right? And God just radically changed his life, and now he's living for the Lord. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and following, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. This isn't second chance theology. This is second life. Listen to the, listen to the certainty. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us less dead. No, that's not what it says. Made us alive. I'm not dead yet. It's not this. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show his, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's as good as done. Raised us up. Seated us with him. Raised. Seated. It's done. It's finished. It's paid in full. Second life. Romans 8, verses 26 and following. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray. As we would say, what a, I don't even know what to say. I don't even know how to pray. I can't even explain to God what's on my heart. I don't really know how to pray. Is there a right way to pray? Is there a right words? Do I have to mecha, mecha, high, mecha, high? Like, is there, is there a certain formula of words that I have to say? God's like, got that covered for you, bro. Verse 26. We do not know how, what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I even have that covered for you. He who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God's on it. It's not a second chance that might not be around tomorrow. It's a second life. And so that if our life abruptly ends, either because of our untimely death or because of the Lord's return, it's just a transfer from this life into the next. It's not the end and judgment and doom and failure with no means of escape. What grace. So much better than just a little second piddly chance, but a second life. We who have turned away from sin into Christ and for salvation, we have this promise that we've been predestined, called, justified, glorified. It's as good as done. And you know, there's this, the way the king talks to his people when he says, let everyone turn in his proclamations in Jonah chapter 3. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And I love the honesty with which he speaks, right? Then he goes, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows? You know, we can become so comfortable in our sin. We can become so comfortable in our lostness that you just assume anything outside of that would be worse than what you're in. But even a pagan king's like, who knows? What might happen if you took that area of your life out of the darkness and into the light, brought it to the feet of Christ, and said, I'm, I'm bringing this to you? Who knows? What might life be like with 
no secrets, no double life. Where we know what you know, and you're bringing to God something he already knows, but would just love to have that conversation with you. Who knows? Maybe God would relent from the judgment that is coming to you. But we have something better in the Word of God than what we have from a pagan king in Nineveh, right? Listen to the words of Jesus as we close and prepare to celebrate communion. You won't hear him saying, who knows? Because Jesus is like, I I know. I know. He really does know. Listen to the certainty of the promises for those who surrender their life to Christ, placing all their trust in him for the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Listen, if you're that person who's like, I just refuse to believe. I'm just not going to. I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to. I'm here because I'm here. It's kind of the thing I do. I'm here because she asked me. I'm here because he made me. I'm here because I lost the bet. I don't know why you're here. But you're here and you're like, listen to the word, the word of God looking at you say, who knows? What might it be like if you placed your faith and trust in God? What might it be like if you said, I'm going to actually do what this book says and see what God does? Who knows? Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me might not hunger. Shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. But all that the Father gives me, eh, hopefully, no, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Who knows? Jesus is like, I know. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose, you know how much? I should lose what? Nothing. I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6, says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's a, it's a certain thing. It's a promise. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And so what about you? Let's put away second chance theology. But let's talk about what it means to walk in the light as he is in the light. Let's talk about what it means to feel that even though there's one man who's just like a towering 5'9", maybe in these shoes, standing before you, that I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to a crowd, but there's a tugging, there's a poking, there's a gnawing, there's something that you can't deny that can't be me. I'm just a dude. But God is calling something to your attention. God is drawing you. God is telling you, come to me today. This is the day. I've given you life. It's for a reason. Today is the day of salvation. Not second chance but second life.
not just self-improvement, but laying it all before the Lord, saying, I trust you. I believe in you. Why? Who knows? Who knows how God might use that in your life to radically change you for his glory and for your good? God, we pray that you would indeed continue to cause your spirit to run within the lives of our people. Lord, do what no human preacher can do. And that is, would you preach personally, specifically, take a generally preached message and bring it home to individual hearts and souls and do it for your glory. Bring about change. You've granted life today to all of us. You are tarrying. Would we make the most of this time to repent in where we need to repent and for some to come to you for the first time that they might have everlasting life. We're grateful for second chances, yet we do not presume upon them. Show us what it means to make the most of the opportunities that you lay before us for your glory, for our good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.